We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hello everyone and welcome to Novel Feelings where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. I'm Elise, just once again doing a solo intro and outro. Today we are very excited to present an interview with Megan Williams, who is the author of the newly released book, Let's Never Speak of This Again. You might have heard of this book uh, as Megan Williams won the 2022 Text Prize for her debut novel, which is extremely exciting and a huge congratulations to Megan. Uh, Megan lives in Brisbane with her husband and their three children. A little bit about the book, life is pretty good for 16-year-old Abby. Okay, her grandma doesn't remember things anymore, her relationship with her mum is increasingly strained, and she accidentally kissed her cousin's cousin on the weekend, so things aren't exactly perfect. But everything is manageable with her best friend Ella by her side, and with Ella's brother Will interesting and attentive on the sidelines. When new girl Chloe arrives, Abby's pleased to be the one to show her around to welcome her into the group. But Abby doesn't imagine Chloe fitting in so well, or quite so quickly. And before long, Abby is feeling just a bit left out, a little unsure of Ella's friendship. In a moment of anger and confusion, she wishes something bad would happen. When it does, with tragic consequences, everything shifts again, and Abby has to face her own feelings and work out what friendship really means. A big thank you to Text Publishing for linking us together. Before we get started on the interview, just a couple of disclaimers as usual. So first of all, we're trained psychologists, but this podcast should never be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. As usual, the first half of this interview is spoiler free, but the second half does contain some pretty major spoilers for Let's Never Speak of This Again, as we dig into the mental health content and the things that happen in the second half of the book. And finally, a few quick content notes for topics such as grief, shifting friendship dynamics, dementia, and consent. All right, let's get started on the interview with Megan. Megan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're really looking forward to interviewing you and learning a little bit more about your book. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for your time. Uh, Congrats on winning the text prize in 2023. That's really awesome. (laughs) It's very exciting. (laughs) For any listeners who aren't aware, the text prize is awarded for the best manuscript for young adult and children's writing. How has life changed for you since winning this award and publishing your debut novel? My life actually changed quite a lot while I was writing the book. So when I started writing in March 2020, I had, um, we had one child, Scarlett, and I'd just gone back to work after my parental leave. Um, we now have three children, including our beautiful daughter, April, who has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And we do lots of therapy with April. So she has regular physio, speech, and OT. And I ended, take, ended up taking some more time off work to focus on those therapies and take her to all her appointments. So during that time, writing was a real outlet for me. Winning the text prize, it was so exciting, but the best part was that I got to work on the manuscript for a whole extra year with the help of my wonderful editor from text, Jane Pearson. Let's never speak of this again. It's been out for just over a month now. Um, so it's still quite fresh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's writing was quite a private thing for me. Mm. So I didn't tell many people that I was writing. Not many people knew I was writing and very few people had read the manuscript. 
So it has been nice to share what I've been working on. Was that a big surprise for people in your life to hear about the work that you've been doing and all the hard work you've been putting into it? I think so. I mean, <laughs> well, my friends know I really love reading, but there is a leap from reading yeah. to writing. So I want to be able to share with them what I've been doing. Um, but publishing a book, it is a little more than just sharing with your close friends and family. <laughs> yeah. Really supportive. Um, so it was really nerve-wracking as well. I do listen to lots of podcasts about writing, so I was prepared for these mixed emotions, but even so it was more nerve-wracking than I thought it would be. Mm, I imagine. Yeah, but then, you know, I've, I've started to hear from people who've read the book and connected with the story, and that's been really incredible and something that I know wouldn't have happened if I hadn't put it out there. I'm sure it's really nice to hear from people who resonate with the things that you've written about. Yeah, and surprising people as well. So <laughs> it's been really nice. It's quite a vulnerable thing to be putting putting your your hard work, your artwork, your thoughts out into the world. So I guess you can never know exactly how people are going to respond, but it's it must be nice to hear the positive feedback and, yeah, all of that coming through. So that's really, really nice to hear. Yeah, that it does really make it all worthwhile. Definitely. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the characters and a little bit more about your novel, Let's Never Speak of This Again. So our main character, Abby, you know, we, we learn a lot about Abby as the book goes on. And before we dive into spoilers, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Abby at the start of the book and the character herself and her personality. So throughout the novel, her friendship group experiences quite a shift in dynamics, especially as the new girl Chloe is introduced into the group. And suddenly Abby must share her best friend, Ella, and experiences a lot of complicated feelings. So what led you towards exploring this idea of complicated best friendship and drifting apart and so on? Yeah, um, I've always been drawn to stories about friends. Mm. So if there's an option for, to watch a rom-com, or a story about friends, I'll always pick the second one. <laughs> um, and then what led me to this story in particular, it's going to sound boring, but it's true, it was um, having kids. So I started writing around the time my oldest daughter started talking and very quickly talking went to arguing. And I just had this shocking realisation that you're going to become a teenager. So, <laughs> so I started thinking about what I wished for her during her teenage years. And my first thought was, God, I hope you have good friends. Mm. I thought about it some more and I decided that it was actually, I hope she is a good friend. Mm. And then that got me thinking about my own teenage years and teenage friendships. And I realized that even though a lot of my close friends are friends from school, my views on friendship have really changed over the years. So when I was a teenager, I really did think friendship equals time spent together. Mm. And I thought that if there was a friend of mine who came close with someone else, then that automatically impacted on our relationship and meant that we became less close, mm. which is, yeah, like it's a pretty stressful way to live and it's also not particularly conducive to being a good friend. Well, it's a lot of stress that can come from that if that's the standard that you're holding your friendships to, right? Exactly. So I thought I'd explore how that um, approach to friendship itself can strain a relationship. Mm. So in the he starts off with this same limited understanding of friendship that I had as a teenager. And then I thought to really test it, 
I decided that something tragic would happen so that Ella needed her best friend Abby more than ever right at the time when Abby was questioning whether they were still as close as they used to be. I was thinking as I was reading this, um, that perception of, you know, if this is your best friend, then it has to be just the two of you forever um, is actually more common than I realized when I was growing up. But I, I kind of had that feeling as well. I, you know, this is my BFF and we should be spending all our time together. Um, and if someone else came into that friendship, then that threatens my position, I suppose, or, you know, our relationship as BFFs. Um, mm. But then in working with kids, particularly around that sort of grade five to seven ages, that seems quite to be more common than I expected. So a lot of girls would have these, you know, um, questioning around, well, my best friend just made another friend. Like, what does this mean for us? And where do I stand? I think so. it's a pretty common thought that a lot of young people go through and probably, you know, some older people as well still have that idea about friendship too. Yeah. I know one of the things I've struggled with a bit in my life is this feeling that my I'm not my best friend's best friend at various times throughout yeah. the years and that sort of envy or jealousy that can come from your close friend being close friends with somebody else and thinking are they closer than our own relationship and what does that mean about me? Um, and we can see that is very clear. Something like that is very clearly happening for Abby with her core anxieties that she's going through. I just wanted to give her a hug through so much of the novel. <laughs> I was also interested in Abby as an unreliable narrator mm. at times in that, you know, it's the stories told in the first person perspective. So we're looking at everything through her eyes. And sometimes when she's anxious or jealous it's hard to know if she's reading situations correctly or interpreting people's um, behaviors accurately um, how would you describe Abby's experience of anxiety or her being this kind of unreliable narrator so to speak yeah so Abby's unsure of herself constantly compares herself to other people and has a tendency to overanalyze things so she is confident in some areas like netball and school I think because there's these objective standards that she can point to that indicate she's doing well mm -hmm. um, social situations can be trickier so her best friend Bella she's this naturally warm and confident person um, and Abby places a lot of importance on them being best friends it gives her confidence and um, also her identity or at least how she sees herself is really wrapped up in this idea of being Ella's best friend. But I think she does have this um, underlying concern that she's getting more from the friendship than Ella is, and so she thinks that she's really lucky to have Ella as a best friend. And then when it comes to meeting new people, um, Abby worries that, you know, she doesn't have anything interesting to say or she's going to embarrass herself, and she's really caught up with how other people might perceive her. So she doesn't give a lot of herself or she finds herself acting in ways that aren't particularly genuine. And this makes it hard for her to connect with other people and means that typically she doesn't make new friends very easily or quickly. So when the new girl Chloe starts at school and they do hit it off, she's really pleased to have this new friend unsettling. That definitely comes across in, in, in the way she analyzes isn't the right word, but there are some, sometimes Chloe will do something and Abby's like, 
is she looking smug or is she thinking <laughs> yes. right there? So that was really interesting, yeah. Which I'm guessing is, you know, a reflection of her insecurities more so than necessarily what Chloe is thinking or feeling at the time. I mean, you, you don't know because we, we don't have Chloe's point of view, but that was the impression I got. Yeah, and because of these insecurities, she's probably not giving Chloe a generous read. She is going straight to those feelings of, of smugness because she's feeling threatened herself. Mm. Whereas she might not take those things that way if she's just taking more of the opinion of it's great that my two best friends are becoming friends themselves. We can all be friends. And you know, remembering as well that her first impression of Chloe was, was quite positive as well. So after you have that lens of threat, I think that kind of clouds a lot of things for her and is definitely influenced by I think maybe a bit of underlying social anxiety that Abby has too. Like I don't think this is the first time Abby has experienced any social anxiety, but maybe it's a bit of a trigger for things to escalate for her during the book. And at the start, she's so thrilled that um, Chloe, she thinks, picked her to be her friend. And then when she becomes friends with other people, she's questioning, did she like me for me or did she just need a friend to start and now she likes other people better? So, yeah, I think that's right relatable also very sad <laughs> at times <laughs> if you ever been friends with someone or you know had someone who seems a lot cooler than you like you it's like what are you trying to get out of this what's happening right now <laughs> so the characters in the novel are older teens but I think a lot of their struggles particularly with friendships and relationships would be relatable for a younger audience as well how did you approach writing for this teen audience in general So the teenage boys comes quite naturally to me. Um, And I think teenagers, they can be just as complex and nuanced as adults. But the thing about teenagers is that they're often going through things for the first time. And very rarely in life do we get things right the first time. So true. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. They are friends um, and they do hurt each other at times due to their jealousies and insecurities. But I did want to avoid that stereotypical bitchiness that's often associated with teenage girls. So even though they do make mistakes, um, the friends, they do really care deeply about each other. And then I guess the other main thing about a YA book is that um, as a general rule, they're hopeful stories. So this is the non-spoiler section, so I won't give too much detail. Mm -hmm. But, you know, partway through the book, something tragic happens. So the story is not something tragic happens, the friends struggle with it in different ways and feel lonely and isolated the end. Um, but it is, it is a moment in time. So we don't know that they are best friends forever or that they live happily ever after, but because it's a YA book, I do stay with the characters until they can at least see that way forward. I do like that, um, about, you know, how you said you're, you try to avoid the stereotypical bitchiness that's Mm -hmm. often associated with teenage girls, like not to say that doesn't happen, but I think that sort of complex, sort of tender relationship, even like the whole BFF things is very female. I don't think teenage, I don't know, but I assume teenage boys don't go through the same kind of dynamics or not as much as teenage girls seem to. So I like, I think I really enjoyed seeing this place out in the story. Yeah, I feel like the whole best friend idea the way that they have it is very teenage girl. Um, So, you know, the struggles that they have, the way that they interact with each other um, in a really beautiful way. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's not to 
you know, we, we never dismiss things because they're popular or seen in teenage girls. I just think it's a quite a unique um, and wonderful dynamic to explore throughout the novel. Yeah, that's really interesting what you said about it being a, a girl thing because um, it doesn't, I mean, just from my experience of reading books mm. with male teenagers, yeah, it is different, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think it came. I first realized that because my fiance and I were talking about having a bridal party for our wedding. And I said, well, who's your best friend? And he's like, I don't have one. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have one? And he's like, no, I have a lot, a bunch of close friends. And, you know, none of them is the best. And I'm like, well, I have two people I would call my best friends. And then he's like, but that, but best means one. So you have to choose one. And I'm like, we have very different understanding of what best friends mean. I totally know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So I, like, I think boys have their own kind of ways of navigating friendship, but the language might be quite different. I would agree with that. Yeah. And I do commend you for avoiding writing the bitchy characters because I feel like it could have been easy to write a character like Chloe, for example, as being the bitchy character or the mean girl to be coming in and ruining things. But I think it's more interesting to write her as someone who's not like that, and, but we're seeing everything from um, Ab- Abby's perspective. So so throughout the book, Abby and her family are managing grief around Abby's grandmother, Mima, who is experiencing dementia. What was important to you when it comes to writing about a family touched by dementia? I wanted to reflect how complicated it can be loving someone who has dementia. Mm. So there's that saying that you should write what you know. Um, So Mima is a fictional character, but my grandma in real life, she did have dementia. And I did draw on that experience when writing Let's Never Speak of This Again. Um, I was really close with my gran. So she was warm and funny and smart and I loved her company. And then as she had dementia, I watched as it took away all the parts of her personality that to me made her my gran. And so she was just as unrecognisable to me as I was to her. So it is kind of like losing someone and you can start to grieve while they're still alive. But, you know, they are alive and they have needs. So a lot of complicated feelings um, can accompany that grief. Obviously, there's a lot of sadness. So seeing someone you love so confused or distressed or just quite obviously losing interest in life. And then there can be a lot of guilt as well. So guilt about their care arrangements, guilt that you're not visiting enough, or guilt that when you are visiting, you might sometimes find yourself wishing that you were somewhere else. Um, I never would have admitted it at the time, but looking back, I can see that I did find it really difficult visiting Mm -hmm. Greg in those last few years. Um, So I just wanted to be honest about that experience and write something that I might have found useful at the time. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of grandchildren or children of parents who are experiencing that, feeling a lot of validation in what Abby goes through um, because, you know, it is a a type of grief and one that I don't think we talk about enough and I don't see a lot of representations, particularly of young people that are going through that and what that means to be witnessing somebody's somebody who you love have their entire personality change like that and having to to deal with that and seeing things get, become worse as well. It's not a static thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's not this one 
if you did lose someone, you know, that's an event that happens that mm. people might know about. But this is something that could go on for years and years and years. Um, so, you know, when you're a teenager and you're not necessarily reaching out to people about that, it can be a long time for you to be going through it. There's something that I wanted to say about this, but I'm going to keep it for the spoiler section. <laughs> so there's like a particular fight that happens that I think, you know, would be I would I really like that and would love to unpack that a little bit more but I will I will wait for one more question (laughs) (laughs) we are very nearly at the spoiler section so we will ask our final non-spoiler question which is something that we actually ask to everybody who we interview on the podcast which is do you have any authors or books that you'd like to recommend to our listeners you know I do So I can't remember why I started doing it, but in 2019, I bought myself a notebook and I started recording every book I'd read. And then we moved house last week and when I was packing it, I spent a lot of time that I should have been packing, (laughs) reading over it. Um, Because, yeah, I'd forgotten some of the things I'd read. And one that really jumped out to me was um, Lee Sales' Any Ordinary Day. Have you read that? No, I haven't, but I I know of it. It's one of those... I feel like it's a yeah. book I see recommended a lot, but yeah, I'd love to hear your Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah. Lee Sales, she talks to people who, ordinary people who on ordinary days have some unimaginable life-altering event happen to them, like terrorism or a natural disaster, and she talks to them about it and explores how they manage to even find their way through that. And despite the content, it is, it's quite a hopeful story. And I saw that I read it. It was the last book I read before I started writing. And it had a big impact on me at the time. And I think it actually influenced how I wrote about grief. Mm-hmm. And then I've read a lot of really good Aussie young adult books too recently. Um, one that really blew me away is Karen Comer's Grace Notes. Okay. Oh, yeah. I've also seen this one recommended. Yes. So yeah. why, why do you recommend this one? <laughs> it's about two teenagers in Melbourne. So a violinist and a street artist that find each other during lockdown. Um, But the book, it's written in freestyle verse. And I'm not sophisticated at all when it comes to poetry, but it is so easy to read. The characters are so real. And I I loved reading it now, but I particularly think I would have loved it as a teenager. Yes, I can see the cover in my mind. And when you say violinist and street artist, I'm like, ah, oh, that's why that it looks like that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for the recommendations. We'll put links to those in our show notes as per usual. As you were talking about, you know, writing about the guilt that you feel about care arrangement for a family member with dementia and um, guilt about visiting but not really wanting to be there. I was thinking about Abby's fight with her mum and how her mum called her a bitch at the end of that fight. And I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, and I could see why mum had said it to her, but you could also see like the feelings from both sides. Um, I don't know if I have a question about this. I just wanted to say that was a standout scene. (laughs) That was brutal. I will just say that as someone who... You know, has gotten in, into some pretty wordy fights with relatives before where they've said some not so nice things. I felt that one in my soul, just like, oof. But you also know where I hope you can see that, you know, the second the mum said that, she yeah. just felt Oh, terrible. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Like you can see where it comes from and that they were both lashing out out of a place of hurt. Um, 
But and I suppose, saying things that they don't necessarily mean in that yeah. moment of anger. Yeah, and I really liked, you know, we don't see a lot of mom because she's obviously the side character in this story, but through the little hints we can see, even from Abby's perspective, that she's struggling with the care arrangement and trying to be, you know, a good daughter, but there are limitations to what she can do, I suppose, in this situation because it's so um, high needs. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think what we're saying about they didn't mean it, I think the intention from both sides was just to hurt the other person. Mm. Um, So they're saying things that they didn't mean, but they knew that it would have the desired effect. Um, And then they both immediately regretted it. Yeah. And I think I enjoyed reading uh, the relationship between Abby and her mom, especially in those moments where Abby was like, no, I actually, I need you, but she wouldn't say it. Mm. It feels very true to that time of your life where you don't want to need your mom, but you do. Yeah, and you know, turning to your friends for a lot of emotional support as well and turning away from your mom, but then still yeah, really needing them sometimes. Especially when your friends don't always have the best advice to give you at the time they might not have the wisdom that their relatives do yeah (laughs) all right let's dive into our spoilers and talk a little bit more about what happens in the second half of the novel everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The second half of the novel is driven by the tragic and sudden death of Will, Ella's older brother. Let's have a little bit of a chat about how both Abby and Ella, two of our main characters, respond to Will's death and their different experiences of grief. So first of all, Ella seems to put on a brave face for a lot of the novel, but the reader grasps how much she's obviously hurting. How would you describe Ella's experience of of grief and how you approached this? Yeah, so at the start, Ella doesn't deal with her grief at all. She doesn't talk about Will or his death and she seems keen for life to get back to normal as quickly as possible. But this approach of ignoring grief, it only works for so long. So the book is written from Abby's point of view, so we don't know exactly how Ella's feeling. But as she said, we do start to see these signs that she's not doing as well as she appears. And Abby, her best friend, notices, but she doesn't bring it up with Ella. So I think for Ella, for a long time, her experience of grief is quite lonely. And then it does catch up with her. Um, One of those things where she's pushed the feelings down for so long that they're just bubbling to the surface whether she likes it or not. So the girls are getting ready to go to a concert. Um, A song reminds her of Will, and she becomes quite unexpectedly and uncontrollably upset. And then after this, um, you know, there can be no, no question that she is really struggling. And then Abby does find find a way to ask Ella how she's going. Um, she says Will's name, which is something they've both been avoiding, and says to Ella if she ever wants to talk about Will, she's here for her. 
And she does. So not immediately, but it's not that long after. And I think that that starting to talk about it with Abby is the start of Ella engaging with her grief and processing what happened. I love that conversation that they had about what happened and how Ella admitted that her last words to Will and Will's last words to her were less than ideal, Mm. so to speak. And I think that's very, that would make grief even more complicated when the last thing you said to each other were quite, was quite hurtful. Yeah, and until she shared that with Abby, no one knows that. So that's just something that she's carrying herself and trying her best to ignore, but can't ignore it forever. Mm. Yeah. It's a big big weight to be carrying by yourself. Mm. Mm. And you know, readers can obviously pick up some of the signs that maybe things aren't quite right, but I feel like Abby really struggles to sort of know her place and to to think about the best way to support Ella, um, what to say, what to do, how to manage her own feelings of grief and see them as being valid too is a big thing. Um, you know, we see a lot of this idea of, well, Ella's the one who deserves to be grieving, whereas Abby being a step removed maybe doesn't deserve to have that experience of grief quite so much. Not in those exact words, of course, but I feel like that's sort of the feeling that Abby's sitting with the part of the novel. So how, how would you describe Abby's grief compared to Ella's? Uh, I mean, you probably just summarised it better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think she, she really means well. So she wants to be there for Ella. Um, but I think because she looks up to Ella and often defers to her in social situations, she misinterprets Ella's lack of reaction as Ella being strong. And then when she does start to notice these signs that Ella isn't doing as well as she thought, she does have a lot of complicated feelings. So she thinks she's a bad friend that she didn't notice sooner. And then I think she also feels a bit foolish for ever having thought that Ella could have been okay. Mm. Um, And then going back to what we were talking about, about the importance of this best friend label, Abby thinks that Ella should have spoken to her about it because they're best friends, not because she acted in a particularly caring way. So when Ella doesn't talk to her, she worries that that means that they're not as close as they used to be. Um, And then I think this means that she's just become so worried about saying or doing the wrong thing that there are a few crucial moments when she doesn't say anything at all, um, despite feeling so much. And then when it comes to her own grief, I think like a lot of things in her life, Abby's just convinced she's doing it wrong. So at the start, she thinks that it's weird she didn't cry when she finds out that Will had died and then at the funeral. Um, And then when she keeps thinking about Will, but Ella, and it's Ella's brother and she seems to be fine, as you said, she thinks she doesn't, she's getting more upset than she has a right to be. And then for Abby, the complicated thing as well is just before Will died, she started having feelings for him, which were, you know, she found exciting, but she also never really entertained the idea that Will felt the same way or that anything would come of it. So despite, I think, all her overanalyzing and self-analysis, she doesn't recognize that she's grieving too because she thinks that any sadness she's feeling about Will is wrapped up in this fantasy um, she had about them liking each other. And then I guess as the story goes on, she comes to realize that people grieve in different ways and at different times and that the real help is just to be there for your friends, however they are. And I think that's an important message 
by all means. Um, yeah, as someone who's, I'm lucky that I haven't had to experience a huge amount of grief in my own life so far, touch wood. I know that won't last forever, but I have had a lot of friends and family who have, and I very much related to Abby's experiences around not knowing what to say, you know, worrying about how, you know, if you say the wrong thing, is that going to distress somebody? Is that going to be more harmful than helpful? Should I mention this person's name? Do I have to tiptoe around it? What is my role as a friend or a family member? I think is a big one as well. Um, Cause there's no manual for this mm. <laughs> by any means. There's no manual on how to grieve or how to support someone who's grieving. Actually, maybe there is. We talk, we work in psychology. There's probably a manual somewhere. <laughs> there are tip sheets somewhere. There are tip sheets. <laughs> but for the average person who, you know, maybe doesn't think to look up actual tip sheets, um, it is a very complicated place to be sitting in. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. And then when Abby does um, manage to have that conversation with Ella, it, it does go okay. Um, it's probably... It was less dramatic, I'd say, and easier for her than she thought it would. So I think it can be one of those situations where if you're anxious or nervous about something and you spend a lot of time contemplating all the ways that you can mess it up, Mm. the anticipation can often be the worst part. Mm. Yeah. And it can prevent you from trying anything that might be helpful as well if you're just worried about consequences. Yeah. I think speaking from the other perspective, like having experienced my own grief, the only thing people could do wrong is if they turn it to be about them and their mm. loss and you're like, why am I the one consoling you right now? Um, but, you know, apart from that, just someone being there and um, making, you know, their compassion known, I think, is is really nice in any way that that comes. And be hopeful as well. If- yeah. From um, Ella's perspective, if friends don't know what to say, so they say nothing. Yeah. Just having it ignored. Um, and if people jump to talk about other things, mm. you can miss that opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. And I suppose with Ella as well, well, this is my take of it, but you can correct me. This is not correct. Um, um, she seems to be the, you know, the put together one and she's the responsible one. So it feels like she almost doesn't want to burden people by bringing it up perhaps. And she feels like she has to be this, the one holding it all together because her her parents can't do that at the moment. So. Even potentially in the friendship with Abby. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe she thinks Abby can't handle it as well. Mm, so she true. doesn't feel like it is a safe space initially. Yeah. Well, um, to take a bit of a, left turn from this topic (laughs) let's chat a bit about abby's experience with zach well anyone listening to this section should know who he is but how would you describe him he's a bit of a dick bit of a dickhead yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but abby had had an experience with him that explored some of the nuances of consent including the importance of enthusiastic consent so can we have a chat a bit more about her response to Zach's behavior and um, her confusion about the experience? The kind of story that we need to know for this is that Abby and Ella are at Ella's house one Friday night. Um, Will's there with a couple of his mates, including Zach, and they do all hang out together, play some drinking games. 
Zach flirts with Ella and it does turn into quite a boozy night. And then at the end of the night, Abby goes into the kitchen to get some water. Zach walks in. They have a really brief conversation. And then before she knows what's happening, Zach's kissing her. And at first, Abby kisses him back. But then after a moment, she stops kissing him back. But Zach doesn't seem to notice and he keeps kissing her. Then Will walks in. Zach kind of jumps off her as though he was caught out. Um, And that's the end of it for that evening. And then the next morning, Abby tells Ella that she kissed Zach. And Ella responds in this kind of excited way, like, oh, tell me what happened. Um, And Abby just finds that response quite jarring. But at the time, she can't really explain why. So she just kind of makes a joke that, oh, it wasn't a very good kiss. And she doesn't elaborate. Um, But she's left feeling very uneasy about it. And then that night, she reflects on what happened. And there are a few things that confuse her. So she did, you know, there was that initial point where she kissed him back and she recalls that her first thought was oh but but you like Ella so maybe there was that point just for a second of maybe some excitement or curiosity at being the one that he did choose to kiss um but then she does stop kissing him but he keeps going and then another thing that confuses her is that she wasn't she says at the time I wasn't screaming in my head for him to stop or anything I just felt nothing um, so I think we, you know, maybe it's a freeze response. Um, but at the time she can't quite work out what happened. And then she does say that the way Zach responded when Will interrupted him, it makes it seem like he knew that what he was doing wasn't okay. But then when they run into each other further down the track, um, Zach doesn't even remember her name. And he just appears to have no concerns about what happened that night. Mm. So she starts to think, oh, maybe maybe I overreacted or maybe I blew it out of proportion. Um, and then as the story goes on, she does reflect on it further about what happened. And she comes to realise that when Will walked in um, and they stopped, that she felt relieved. And then she works through it and she realises that even though she might not have told Zach to stop or be in her head screaming for him to stop, um, she didn't want to continue. Mm. And, look, the reason we put this question in the spoiler as opposed to the non-spoiler was because we were hoping you would have an in-depth reflection about her, her thought processes as the book went on. So thank you. Thank you for that and for sort of outlining how she reflected on it and came, you know, perhaps came to terms with, her own complicated feelings about the scenario and her different interpretations of the scenario. And I guess coming to realize that it's not really okay what happened, even though she might not have actively told him to stop in the moment, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, I guess what I was trying to show is that um, the absence of a no or resistance, that's not the same as consent. Consent is something that she has to give um, and it can be, withdrawn at any time and that she doesn't even she doesn't need to have a reason so in the moment she doesn't fully understand why she wants to stop but she doesn't need to be able she doesn't need to know it herself and she doesn't need to be able to articulate why she just needs to know that she doesn't want to continue and that consent is withdrawn yeah and it is so telling that Zach jumped off her 
when some when when Will interrupted them because clearly at some level he knew that she wasn't into it. He just chose to actively ignore that. Mm. So yeah, that was I think it's good to see that you know it doesn't have to be uh, as assault as we would imagine it to be, like you know you screaming no and them forcing their way forward. Um, that it could just be like. I don't actually like this and it doesn't mean that it was an, an, an okay experience still yeah there's a lot of gray area so we can we can definitely see that Abby her mind her minds and her interpretations of things have definitely evolved as the story has gone on but how would you describe the main character's headspaces by the end of the novel now that a bit of time has passed since Will's death yeah, I think we leave them in a pretty good place. So I'm sure there'll be some ups and downs in the future, but mm. the friends have found a way to talk to each other about Will and to start processing their grief in healthy ways. And Abby finds that when she does seek to truly understand how Ella's feeling, their relationship deepens. So I was hoping that readers might see a connection between Abby learning to think and care about others more, to her feeling like she is a good friend to becoming more confident in herself and secure in her friendships, and then to also becoming a more inclusive friend and more generous towards Chloe. So at the end, they've kind of reached a new normal. So it's no longer just Abby and Ella. It's now Abby and Ella and Chloe. And in Abby's words, it's good most of the time. (laughs) And that's about the best case scenario you can expect from a lot of friendships, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I can see her definitely expanding to make more space for Chloe and being a bit more accepting of that friendship. Um, it doesn't mean that their dynamic has to be completely like a triangle of equalness <laughs> where everybody yeah. is equal best friends with one another. They're all going to have their different little relationships within that friendship group and the broader friendship group, which we haven't really um, spoken about. But, yeah, I think having... Feeling more settled is definitely the impression I get. There's still there's still a ways to go and they're going to have their own challenges. It's that kind of happily for now situation. (laughs) That's exactly the note I wanted to hit, happily for now. Well, we love ending on a note of hope anyway. (laughs) We both recently have read a couple of really depressing books that don't end on that note of hope. So (laughs) it's nice to read something that makes me feeling a little bit better about the world at the end. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for joining us on the podcast. It's been great to hear a little bit more about your book and your writing process. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. That wraps us up for today. Thank you so much for listening and a big thank you to Megan for joining us on the show. Remember to check out our show notes on our website for information about where to find Megan as well as her book and author recommendations. If you like us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews help other people find the show and we really appreciate them. Find us on novelfeelings.com or on Instagram, Twitter, The Storygraph and Goodreads via at novel underscore feelings. You can also find Priscilla on Bookstagram at pavedwithbooks with an extra S. Thank you so much. See you next time.